0: Welcome to episode 4 of the What's Going On In Your Head podcast, where we explore the secret inner workings of the mind through performance art and discussion, live, online and now on this podcast. I'm Liz Smith, the host of the show. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the subject of adult anorexia. Some of the content may be triggering for people with eating disorders, and so listener discretion is advised. For this episode we decided to sort of turn things around a bit and this time i've interviewed the person in this case laura and rather than me interviewing myself about the interview maria is going to interview me about the interview and and what the experience was like and and we're going to discuss that together so maria yes you listened to the full unedited version what questions have you got for me
1: i have quite a few actually and some of them feel so different from each other because I think Laura addressed so many things in one go.
2: Hi, my name is Laurencia Laura Marlene Evelyn Campbell. But at age 24, got very, very unwell. I got very, very anxious. And then the anxiety stole my appetite and I landed up spending some time in hospital. How I would describe you is
0: as a wordsmith. And in fact, John Salmon, who was our connection, that's exactly how he described you to me. You really are um, incredible with words. And when we had our discussion a while back when we first met, all all done through Zoom, because of the days we are currently living in, you introduced me to your room, your room of words, your den. What do you want to see? Do you want to see? I want you, well, no one else can see this because this is audio. So I want you to describe your den.
2: I love colour and I love collecting things and I'm very much a maximalist and I go to charity shops and just buy as many things as I can and I have fairy lights everywhere. So if you could see, I I write diaries and I'm on my 93rd diary and I have bunting everywhere and I paint and I write and I just love words and I subscribe to a word a day and every day I think that that word, somehow I think that, that word has a meaning towards the day. So like yesterday was desultory which means you know lacking focus and that day I couldn't seem to get my brain in gear and doing a million things at once and so feeling like you weren't achieving anything and then today uh, my word is lotus eater. A lotus
0: eater is someone who spends their time indulging in pleasure and luxury rather than dealing with practical concerns. What a brilliant term. You've probably got the sense already that Laura is a prolific writer, and so now seems like a good time to hear some of her work. Here she is reading from a piece she has written called Mining Mind Maelstroms.
2: The wise translators of this world call it anxiety, that potent, sickening, heart-thumping hyperactivity that consumes and sinks you. Like Bodicea, you sail into thought battles daily, a strong warrior-warrior. Leaving behind adored friends, family and lovers on the soft sandy beaches. Forgetting them in your deep swirling thoughts which assault and consume you. As you overanalyse the past and plan, negatively predict and catastrophize about the future. It blinds you to the good present around you, has you hearing only one forceful, woeful dogma. If you're not the most successful, you're not worthy of being alive, the maelstrom churns, so you no longer feel your man's caresses and instead stress has you fucking fear. Whilst it aggressively drugs your veins with adrenaline so you can't sleep at night, Like a pimp, it has you whoring yourself out over social media for comparisons, so it can rape you of your self-worth and steal your life satisfactions. Locks you in a dark cave with rising seas of fear of missing out, envy and resentment, your appetite for experience and success becoming gluttonous, a bottomless pit. Never satisfied, feeling never good enough, nothing's ever enough, always hungry for more. Everyone is happier, better, more successful, thinner, more beautiful, more loved. Real friends lost in a tsunami of Facebook friends who have great jobs and bodies. A stranger whose opinion suddenly really, really matters to you. Competitively, you want them to like you, to think you're a success, the best. And if you've not completely got your shit together right now, you're a failure. Even if you've already achieved so much, it never feels enough. There's always more to do, as you assume everyone else has it all worked out, knows what the hell they're doing. And deeper and deeper you sink into the deep feeling maelstrom of fear and self-depreciation. Anger at yourself for mistakes you should not have made. Why didn't you know better? The drunken poisonous parrot shouting should'ves, would'ves, why didn't I's? As it takes your beautiful watercolour painting world and smears it with dog shit. Like mind modern art, ugly, overthought and not nice to look at something you would hate to hang in your house and would hide behind the toilet door. You would not tell people about it, never show it to anyone, pretend it's not there. Like that weird gift your aunt gave you, which you hate but cannot throw away. You carry your anxious thoughts with you daily, a heavy bag digging into your left shoulder, weighing you down so you cannot swim, anchoring you so you cannot progress forward. Cannot swim against the tides of your own creation, you're drowning in its deep maelstrom. Whilst everyone tells you to just keep swimming and surf the waves of life, as if it were that easy. So you feel weak and guilty and this just feeds this deep sea monster. Another failure to beat yourself up over, another shouting bully in your head to insult you. Somehow you forgot to buy a surfboard, bought a speedboat with a hole instead, rushed into things with your best intentions and logic at the time, but now you sink. Emotions flooding you, negative thoughts suffocating you, drowning you in your own head. You try relaxing to steer your ship to calmer waters with nature, friends and rest, but rest feels so unproductive and will not help you be successful, so you battle daily. Try to find balance between pushly achieving and just being still and calm. As the official definition and direction of success keeps changing, the map is confused, blurred and the destination is different based upon environment. So you're forced to make up your life as you go along and try to get Wi-Fi connection so your inner satnav can find the route again and get you, you back on course. With time, good food, rest and good people, you sometimes find it again. Learn to accept the past, let it go and see the future as a mystery. Slow the fast heartbeat, take out the adrenaline drip which feeds the monster, feel peace. See the sunsets and sunrises, smell the smells and taste the food again. In your daily battles with yourself as you fight to kill the mind-murdering sea beasts, and try to see the present time as a gift, the most alive will ever be. Find positivity and take off the dark coloured glasses and shoot the black dog. Realise that the grass is always greener because it's fertilised by bullshit. Content not comparing. Enjoying not envying. Rejoicing not resenting. Acknowledging your accomplishments and seeing all the good before, now and to come. Changing your cognitive biases. Finding balance and stillness within yourself. And although the waves of life stay as violent, as turbulent, as unpredictable as ever, our heart and brain ECG and EEG wave poetically showing the peaks and troughs. To be alive is to realise that life is simple, but it's far from ever easy. With joys and sadnesses, ups and downs and strong tides that try to drown you, the waves and waters of every day are anything but still, you learn to surf them. Life and identity in endless state of flux, always changing so many things out of our control. Somehow you find that inner life jacket strength to keep fighting on. Mining the mind maelstroms, swimming energetically and happily back to shore.
0: When you wrote this, what was your situation at that point?
2: Is it something you've written recently or? Well, I've written 100 different versions of this over the over time but I've written a book about it so this is basically a distilled version when I was very unwell my brother came see me in hospital unfortunately my mental health issue really has destroyed my relationship with my brother in some ways because he just can't understand it really relate to it but he's tried really bless his heart with these things you have relapses and then remission and then it's something you'll always be fighting I think to a little extent when I was in hospital, my brother gave me a he had been to China and he found a, a poster and it on it said, just keep swimming. And now now I've based all of my mental health, everything based upon that idea. I love surfing. And so it's all about, you know, surfing the waves.
0: There's a line in mining mind maelstroms, which is whilst everyone tells you to just keep swimming and surf the waves of life, is that, you know, your brother telling you to just keep swimming?
2: Yeah, I think I think it is. It's just, you know, just taking everything day by day and just keep swimming and surf the waves of life knowing that you have your own surfboard of coping mechanisms and you can stay afloat and I think that's really really potent imagery that I really focus on a big part of mental health recovery is realizing you can trust yourself you don't need everyone else you don't need a therapist you might when you're in the acute stage but you'll get to the stage where you you have your own surfboard there will be waves, there will be tsunamis sometimes. You can fight the waves, you, you have the energy, you have the skills, you have the surfboard. Well, it's actually realising, you know what, I am going to feel happy again. There's going to be boats that are going to come along, boats of happiness. What boat are you on at the moment? Well, at the moment, I'm in a, I'd like to say I'm in a very safe boat, um, which is I'm at home with my family. So I'm kind of in what I like to call like the R and L I. But words seem to be one of your coping mechanisms, is that correct? I write a lot, to the point where my, I send tech family text messages on the family WhatsApp group and my brother's like, I can't deal with another essay from Laura. If I have to have another essay that's got a million words in it, I don't even... And he's got this like TLDR, too long, didn't read.
0: Is it the actual act of writing which is useful for you or do you want someone to respond to it and read,
2: read it? I know I'm not this like wise sage who knows everything, but, you know, some days I feel like I know nothing and other days I feel like the most informed person in the room, but that's just life. And, you know, depending on the environment you're in and, you know, who you're around and how you're feeling, some people can make you feel like the biggest idiot in the world and I feel some people can bring out the best in you and some people can bring out the worst. That's very true, actually. The people you surround
0: yourself with uh, can have a big impact on how you feel about yourself and the words you come out
2: with it's very true yeah it is and I sometimes feel that when I'm with people who not necessarily make me feel make me feel incredibly flawed nothing ever do or say will be right and so I stand up talking too fast saying utterly pointless crap just like I know that my brother really hates when I talk about food and so what do I talk about when I'm with him only about food I don't know why it's habit I don't know and I'm just like I might have spent all morning writing a really informed piece on neuroscience or helping uh, some child to learn something or reading this amazing article on some philosophy that I found it really interesting and what will I talk about? I'll talk about the size of my sandwich. I do want to talk about food. One of the many reasons I've wanted to have you
0: on the podcast is because of your story around adult anorexia and you were the first person who sort of really opened my eyes to this concept of adult anorexia uh, I should
2: let you know people know that I, I got anorexia at 24 but before then I'd had a completely normal life I'd been in India and eaten random food from street vendors I'd been to Edinburgh Fringe Festival and had haggis I'd, I'd had you know, I'd eaten completely normal I'd had run a marathon and lived on pasta for six months and what made me get unwell is simple biology I wasn't conforming to some school pressure about my peers because my peers were like 40-year-old men in the office. Very simply, what happened to me is I got, at 24, I ran a marathon and I took a nutritional advice from everyone at the time was really, really focused if you're running a marathon on carb loading and getting loads and loads of carbs into you. So loads and loads of pasta. And everyone was about being low cholesterol and you know never eat fat because it will kill your heart. So my whole diet for a while, which wasn't done deliberately to be thin or anything like that, It was done because I thought that was healthy. And that's because everyone was telling me to carb up. You know, that's what you do with a marathon. And basically what I didn't realize is all this nutritional advice is very much focused on men. And women actually need a lot of fat in their diet because fat makes estrogen. And if your body fat gets too low, what happens is you stop producing estrogen. And estrogen is a mood stabilizer. Your brain needs estrogen It's the same with bodybuilders who build themselves up too much to stop making testosterone. Testosterone does the same thing. And basically it helps to stabilize your mood. It also helps you to sleep. I just got completely bad insomnia. I was sleeping like two hours a night. And I got anxiety. And anxiety is something where your body goes into chronic flight or flight mechanism, which basically means that you're always, your body's like prepared to run away from predator. And so you're hyper. So you lose even more weight and you get really, really hyper and you want to run away. Also, as part of it, um, it slows down gastric motility. Basically, you'll feel full all the time and you have no appetite at all. And then you start to feel low. And then if you start to feel low, your appetite goes even further and you just get smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's like that idea, again, like I talk about in my writing about spiraling down to the bottom of the sea and bottom of what I describe as my maelstrom. Basically, when you get to the bottom of the sea, finding it really hard to swim out of. When you're very low weight you shrink your stomach basically your body responds to appetite based upon how the size of your stomach but if you have a small stomach you just feel full so everyone's always about anorexia they're always like you know you don't want to eat you just don't have an appetite and anorexia is literally defined as a biological loss of appetite so i get very very angry when people talk about to me about is this some kind of conscious choice there
1: and i just believe it 100% was not Uh, like one thing that really caught my eye was when she was saying that this whole thing came up to her happened to her because she uses that expression that it happened to her because she was training to do a marathon which so many of us do so many of us not me but you know like john for example (laughs) he runs marathons (laughs) i've not done a marathon either what she mentioned is that all the recommendations she got in regards to her diet were those that are specific in some sort of way to a male body and i found it so interesting because a lot of the stuff that is out there like even the way seat belts are placed in cars are in accordance to a male body and not a female body and i thought that was so interesting even when you're thinking of running a marathon that you think it's it's a muscle thing the diet is still given and everyone shares this as if it's public knowledge and you will get it from other women because that's why we hear in a, on a general basis that this is a diet you need and we, we stop being individuals with our specificities and we're just this thing. But it's just, I'm very passionate about this because it's just, we ignore this and this is the way we do things, you know? And we don't consider that even the smallest thing What it can cause in someone it's marathon it's something that you only consider if you can do or not due to your physical activity like your physicality but then you don't consider what a diet can do to you because if you want to lose weight there's a specific thing for that but when you're going to perform you don't expect that to leave you with something like this do you i just took a massive turn to ask that question (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, that was a point that that made me sort of sit up and think as well. And I, have you read um, Caroline Criado Perez's book uh, *Invisible Women*?
1: Not yet.
0: Worth a shout out for that because she talks about the the seatbelt strap and the crash test dummy, which is um, tested on men and not women. And obviously women sit further forward because we tend to be shorter and we have bits in different places. And so the crash test army doesn't work so well for for women as it does for men. And there's a lot of stats about in accidents, women often get hurt more because of that. uh, It's certainly worth read because she talks about all sorts of examples where things are set up and tested for men, um, not with women in mind. But The marathon wasn't one I was aware of and it really made me think, because I do a lot of sport myself and and it made me think, ah, I need to be a bit more careful about, is that right for me,
1: someone of my age, of my gender? And if you jump onto gender, because I think even gender is quite a generalised group. We all as beings, our hormones are supposed to function one way or so they say, but even you and I, being both female, Our bodies react to things completely differently because of the context we live in, the way we live in, the way we were brought up and the genes we bring from our family. So even in terms of gender, it's just, I feel like, because we keep talking about this collective consciousness, but I do feel like first we need to come into the individual body, not in a selfish way, but in a way of when we're looking in, we shouldn't look at a reflection coming off a page of the internet. It should be something that we dive in and figure out how we are working, not in relation to anything else, but in relation to us, because my optimal, which is a word that I'm not sure I like, but my optimal is different from your optimal.
2: Now, in recovery, I have relapsed a few times. And I think those relapses have potentially been more of a conscious choice, but that's partly because you know, stimulus receptor response. If I get stressed, I, I lose my appetite. It's not even stressed. And now if I start to worry and about the future and things like that, I mean, in COVID and all that uncertainty and everything, all of these things, they are, 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 do you steal your appetite. So every time I get a stimulus of, sorry, I should let you know, I'm a clinical neuroscientist. You know, stimulus sends a response and you're, you end up responding in the same way, even if it's not deliberate.
0: What's interesting um, okay. by you saying, you know, you are a clinical neuroscientist, so you actually understand what's going on. You, you, you can recognise what's going on. Does that help you um, when it comes yeah. to managing this?
2: It does, but it doesn't make it any better because it still feels very foreign. If you feel very full, then to eat, it feels like that does get the anorexic part of my brain going. Because there is enough. I have to let you know, there is a little part of me that says, you know, if I eat one full, I'll get used to eating more and then I'll spiral to obesity. <laughs> I do still have a, the, a little bit of the, the, the typical anorexia fear of obesity. And um, Do you think that was
0: always there or did that just kick in once? Um, in, no, 24 no I think it, it, it's been there forever.
2: I grew up in Wimbledon um, and, you know, in all the charity shops in the posh bit of the town, only had tiny clothes and then the bit down the hill, which was, you know, the, the less aff- affluent you had your plus sizes. So there was definitely a, a kind of like subliminal message that was being sent to me always, which is that thin equals success and fat equals failure.
0: What struck me all the way through the interview is it's a constant battle for her. Even though she knows all of these things, she's so well informed about how nutrients work, what nutrients are right for her, how much she should be eating, what she should be doing in order to find the that optimal balance. But... Mm. Even though she knows that, the anorexic brain still keeps kicking in and it's a battle for her. It's exhausting in a way. Did that come over to you?
1: Yes, yes it did. It's because if you can keep a very controlled environment, it's one thing, but it's still there. But once you go out into your world, no no matter how much research you've done, there will be other people and sometimes their voices can be very overwhelming even when it comes from within your family, who want the best for you, but they don't know what the best is. So it's their best for you, but it doesn't work for you. And having this conversation, if you think from the point of view of a parent, it must be difficult to negotiate that I don't know what's the best for my kid and I can't do anything about it because that's another thing. It's about Laura having to negotiate with her brain that there are days that it's completely fine, but then there are moments when he feels triggered. And sometimes you don't even understand what trigger it was. Sometimes there's little to nothing you can do other than just offer the support by listening, Uh, because we tend to um, be a little bit of Google ourselves and start sharing all the knowledge that we have because we really want to help. But sometimes all we need to do is say, we're here tell me about experience what do you need and maybe it might be silence it might be just company but not everyone needs advice sometimes they just need to figure themselves out by speaking out loud with you in the room and that's that's okay as well funny thing is I don't
2: judge might be if you're overweight at all because it's not about really about what other people look like it's about how I feel in myself and it's also about this idea that if I you know if I let myself go and I get overweight then nobody will love me you know like I remember going out with boys at school and even now just going on dates with guys and them saying oh do you see the wobbly bits on her and they're like oh god I wouldn't date her she's a fat girl you know and I remember being at university once and some guys coming up to me and telling me I had fat girl mentality. And basically what he meant by fat girl mentality was the idea that I was bubbly and cheerful. And I remember I had I went out with a guy for a long time called um, who was my best friend. And actually, I think my soulmate, he wrote a a beautiful poem for me, um, which was just lovely. And basically it said, you know, he was trying to encourage recovery. He wrote something like Laura is bubbly and kind. And I remember being anorexic and seeing that word bubbly as being your fat Failure, you're fat, you know, he thinks you're fat and that's terrible. And I actually asked him to change the poem. He wrote me a love poem and I got him to rewrite it to take away the word bubbly because that to me was fat girl mentality. What did you think about the
0: comments about the guy who called her bubbly? And
1: yes, it's wow. It's incredible how much you can carry from an experience of the past because it broke my heart when she said that she went to him and asked him to change the poem is just the way he saw bubbly was not the way she saw bubbly so it's like talking speaking a different language using the same word I just thought that everything we say to someone else can be interpreted in such a different way and can carry so much heavy baggage and it's a word bubbly that you associate with something light and for her it's so heavy
0: and it was interesting the context you know she is an incredible wordsmith and Mm. The fact that there's this word which for her has a completely different meaning, uh, that, that I found very interesting.
1: It made me think which words for us do that, and sometimes we're not even aware of it, because she's, she's clearly aware of it.
0: It might be quite interesting if anyone listening to this has a bubbly type word, which for them has a completely different meaning, uh, it would be interesting to hear from other people if they've, got, yeah. if they've got their equivalent of the bubbly word and what that means to them. Do you have
1: one, Liz? I can't think of one now. I'm going to ask you the same question. I have to think about it because there's a lot of words that have been thrown at me and I still don't like them, but it's for the reason they mean what they mean. Yeah. Uh, Actually, thin is a problem for me at the moment because the idea that people associate you being thin with you being healthy is just massive for me right now because I lost a lot of weight actually because of an illness and now I go out and people say oh you look so good you're so thin it's amazing and I'm thinking if you knew just how hard I am fighting to put some weight on it's just it's incredible it's a norm that has been put out there thin is healthy because I used to, to look at people and think the same way actually And I've always wanted to be thin, which also made me rethink my whole conversations. Like, God help us, I got myself into thin, but not in the best way possible. And I don't like it now. Can I give it back? It's a funny line, isn't it? Because you never know what you're saying, what it means to someone else. And it's, ooh, it would be really interesting to find out about listeners' words, because it would help us see the world. It's like adding a, a different dimension onto the world, you know. And how we can navigate this. I think we, we need to be more honest with each other, like Laura is with others and herself. Because if you say something, then you, for you is you being nice to me, you know, and it's not comfortable for me, me being enough, me, me being comfortable enough to go to you and say, you know what, <laughs> this is a bit problematic for me right now. So can we change the way we're addressing this? Yeah, thin is the thing I that is supposed to be good. And for me, it just means illness at the moment so hmm interesting I hadn't thought of that I
0: hadn't well. either and that's such a great point but isn't it interesting that one of the first things we say is we comment on how people are looking yeah maybe we need to stop doing that if you're somebody you know a family member a loved one a friend whatever when you are living with somebody who is anorexic has been anorexic you, you never quite know how, what to do, I you mean, don't quite mom, know how to handle the situation, so what would no, your no, advice
2: no. be? Well, I, I my mum and I have this problem all the time, because basically, whenever she's around, she says, you know, Laura, when I see you very thin, you know, what do you expect me to say? to um, you, because basically, we went to the beach last weekend, and I'd lost some weight, and she saw it, of course, because we were at the beach, mm. and she said to me, you know, in the car on the way home, Laura, you know, I'm worried about you, you know, you seem to have lost some weight, and I, got back at home and I had a big binge and I said you're mistrunchable from Matilda you know you're forcing me to eat you know you're gonna make me morbidly obese you want me to eat well I'll eat I'll eat everything in this goddamn house so I had three jars of pesto I just literally ate whatever I could find in you know that like random half a coconut whatever I could find just because it was like you know you want me to eat well I'll eat I'll eat I'll, I will show you I will eat I will eat so much until I get so I feel sick and that that will make you happy won't it it was like that kind of anger being, you know, because I'd, I'd actually been eating very normally that day. And I, you know, very normally that whole week. What happened to me that week also is that I'd had a couple of job rejections and made me a bit stressed. And when I'm stressed, I get really, really hyper. And so no matter what I ate, I just burn burnt it off. And so, yes, I that's just when that happens. I get hyper. And. You know like and the only way really to deal with the anxiety really weirdly is to be active so I find myself just like you know wanting to run wanting to be to go on x you know exercise and I don't even mean to it just it just happens I just mm-hmm. feel so full of beans that I have to get rid of that kind of like anxiety boom cool on Laura you know fuzziness when I get a bit worried about the future or about getting back on my meal plan and realizing that I've got that surfboard and I can just do it you know yes I'm feeling stressed at the moment but I will still have my three meals a day and I'll still get the fats and the oils and everything in and even if I don't want to I have to do it because food is my medicine and I won't overeat because if I overeat then that you know then that always leads to the negative thinking and the worthlessness and I won't undereat I'll just stick to the meal plan and I'll stay you know and I'll, I'll do what I have to do and at the same time it's very hard when you go out for a meal sometimes and you go out with your big big group of friends and they will have a pizza or something and you won't and then you come home and you feel like you've been deprived you have to kind of force yourself to have the the foods that you really enjoy but you feel like you can't allow yourself to have as an anorexic because you feel like you don't deserve it or it's bad or whatever or you worry that that will literally just spiraling to a and being alone or whatever you've got to force yourself to have it in a weird way because you know if you restrict you crave and that's what leads to the binge eating but then you feel like, oh, I've had a little bit of it. Now I've got to have everything. It's like an all or nothing, black and white thinking kind of idea. You know, have a little bit or well, nothing or half the whole cake. And actually you can just have a slice. So what I've really learned is I've, I've just learned to have, have the slice.
0: So when and, you go out with your friends now and they're all ordering pizza, you can also order a
2: pizza now? Oh, all the time. I have pizza, but I will have a portion of pizza. This is the big thing. I will have what the government says as a portion. So a, a whole pizza is not a portion. It's half a pizza. So I will have a government regulated portion because if I go over that, then I know that I'll go home and then I'll feel shit and I'll feel like, oh, my God, I've, you know, I've, even if everyone else does, I don't care what everyone else does. I've got to do what I have to do to stay afloat. It's all about food pleasure and, and having pleasure from food. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not there on some days, like some days I, I have terribly anorexic thinking and then other days I have terribly binge eating thinking. And I, I recognize the triggers now things like that. Like I know it, it's like if my brother skips breakfast, I know that I find that really difficult um, because it makes me feel fat. I have a huge breakfast. I know if my sister, she's she's always very health conscious and she eats very healthily. And so if I eat very, un, not unhealthily, but even if I that day wake up and I really fancy a piece of my chocolate or something because I'm such an active person, I have to eat a lot. At the same time with the, the binge eating, it's, I find it sometimes the anorexia, what I'll do is have a very, very small meal out with my friends, and then I'll come home and like have a whole jar of pesto for no reason. There's the like dichotomy between like them what they see and what I see. because when they they only see this wholesome good version of me, and they don't see the like naughty, bad version at home in you know eating the crap. I now know what I have to do to stay balanced, and what I have to, do to stay balanced is to have my three meals a day, my three snacks, and regardless of what anyone else does, I don't binge and I don't restrict. You're in remission. And you forever will have to be really careful at big family events, Christmas and stuff like that, to really watch yourself. Mm. And it's horrible. And it's horrible having to be that person and always be watching yourself and having to be careful. And some days you just want to go crazy and have like a new party. But at the end of the day, the only person you'll hurt by doing that is yourself. Do you dread Christmas and events no, like that? No, I used to. God, God, I used to dread Christmas. Like I used to, at the end of the day, after a while, I realised, no, Christmas is one of my favourite times of the year an anorexia recovery and binge eating recovery it's about realizing and i always say this because you know we, we talk about being short-sighted when i think about eating disorders they make you short-sighted because you only see food and you only see your weight you your whole life becomes what about you have and haven't eaten life is so much bigger so when you go to christmas and when you go to easter it's about having your meal stop focus on the people talk to people when you're having that meal do you feel like you're being constantly watched after anorexia, yeah, definitely. I feel like every single person would be like analysing me all the time to making sure that i was eating enough. And then some competitive friends who, you know, wanted to lose some weight and so were trying to copy whatever I ate because they thought they would lose weight. It was ridiculous. I'm so much more than my anorexia and my eating disorder. Spoken at the House of the Parliament. I love clothes and fashion and colours and I love poetry and I love jewelry making and I love camping and I love travelling and I love swimming and running and Beaches and the sea and nature and flowers and gardening and there's so much more to life if you just put on your glasses and you take off the eating disorder eyes and you see the bigger picture and I think that that is really a large part about what my eating disorder recovery has been about about remembering the bigger picture you know your and your weight doesn't define you mm. and at the end of the day what defines you is is your energy and what you choose to make of your life and how you choose to Live each day and whether or not you choose to be kind and whether or not you choose to be compassionate, you're a lioness. Every person has inside them a lioness and has inside them a fire. Recovery from eating disorders and anxiety and any mental health illness. is about reclaiming your identity from away from the eating disorder, away from the anxiety, away from everything and seeing the bigger picture. I can I can see and feel that lion in you right now as
0: you're talking about your identity and actually all of those things that you love and um, are important to you, that's nothing to do with food. And that's, that comes over really
2: strongly. That's when you're in anorexia and eating disorders and everything, you talk about food a lot. Like your whole life is just about food. It's like, well, Oh, I had this for breakfast. I had this for lunch. I had this, the whole life becomes food. But now I can talk about food but more, potentially in a more balanced way. Like I can say, Oh, have you tried that amazing pesto? One
0: you thing I have seem to
2: like pesto. Oh, yeah, it's random. It's weird. Um, Anyway, when you recover from that, you get your appetite for life back. And I want all I want to do is help people get the appetite for life back, see the bigger picture, and put on their glasses and realize everybody deserves happiness and health.
1: When you listen to the conversation you had with Laura, uh, she needs to think through so many things that most of us take for granted, like meals. Usually, we separate our days, our working days, like, oh, I'm going to have a break for lunch now, or I'm going to have a break for dinner. And we go in the fridge, we grab whatever that is, and we make a meal out of it. But what about when you, that's just not a break, when that is the main event of your day almost, when it becomes the thing that you need to be worried about? We're having the conversation about this weird um, powdery diet i on. For me, what was refreshing is that for once, I don't have to worry whether what I'm going to eat is going to make me have a flare or not I just know that it's clear so whatever else comes is from outside food so I don't have to worry about it anymore and it's so refreshing.
0: Worth mentioning
1: just for clarity because we were talking about this before we hit record
0: is you know this is something your doctor has um, recommended. Yes Yes, um,
1: I did not decide to go on this diet by myself it's being supervised by a dietitian. By having this
0: very specific diet that you just have to follow in some ways the press is off not having to think about food.
1: It's almost like an unlock, and it also gives you more time to analyze where the other triggers are coming from, because if food is out of the way, what else can be triggering your anxiety, for example, what is out there? So it's refreshing. It's actually very refreshing. Mm -hmm. So it's all about controlling the amount of food you put on your plate, for example, but if you're eating out, that's not a choice that you have. Sometimes they are their norms. They come onto your plate is how you negotiate the conversation. And then the third person comes in, which is the people you're eating with. So it's so much to negotiate. And usually something they would consider to be a lovely light event of going out with friends for some food. It becomes an anxiety-inducing event. It's about how you have those conversations with those friends, because it's something that you have to introduce Uh, For example, I don't eat now at all. So going to restaurants, I've gone to restaurants with friends and I can have water or a cup of tea. And how you negotiate that so that they are also not feeling bad because they're eating and I'm not. It's the way we communicate. I think that that's the key to it. And I think Laura has found her way around it. Well, first with her poetry and how she communicates with the whole world, but also how she goes into these interactions, even with her family.
0: I want to just go in reverse a bit. Shinji, you made the link between your anorexia and sense of failure. In the monologue, there's this line, and if you've not completely got your shit together right now, you're a failure. And there's quite a lot of elements in in the monologue about failure, and you've mentioned it several times in our chat. Uh, Can we talk a bit more
2: about that? Yeah, sure. Well, one thing I'd like you to be clear is that this sense of failure comes very much from within. To me, I definitely have this very ambitious and driven side of me. I do very much want to succeed. I want to really, really succeed in not just for me, but also because I believe that there, ha- there has to be a purpose why I survived anorexia. And I do believe that I've been quite lucky in my life and I'd love to use all the amazing wisdom and the amazing resources that I've gained in my life to help other people in some capacity. And I feel like if I don't use those, then I have failed because I have been given this amazing gift and I've let it waste it's the same with like wasting food and it's the same with wasting anything I don't want to go to waste so my sense of failure very much comes from wanting to use all my luck to help other people and to add value to this world it's quite a visceral monologue angry visceral monologue oh yeah um,
0: you know the, your choice of language I, I assume is intentional to sort of get that angryness across I, I quite like the angry language by the way <laughs>
2: I am finding peace with everything that's happened to me, I really am, but I still do get quite easily triggered, it's sometimes I just feel so angry about it, just because it just doesn't seem fair, you know, like my brother can skip breakfast and that'd be normal, and yet I, because I've had anorexia, I have to have three meals a day and three snacks, I have to be eating all the time just because of me because I'm Laura and I had anorexia and just Laura has to eat and you know I'm angry because it doesn't seem fair that people judge me all the time. And, I mean I will never forget when I went on a date I went up to my boyfriend's house once his mum cooked a lovely, lovely fish pie for everyone and made me a salad because I've had anorexia and apparently I only eat salad. And I remember someone saying to me once, you know, Laura, you either turn that anger inwards and get bitter and old and miserable or you turn that energy into a fire. And you've become a bright light and you burn a big hole in the sky like the sun and light the world up and be a lighthouse for people swimming against the tides of anorexia and anxiety and help them swim back to shore. So on
0: the one hand, she's kind of got to grips with the fact, no, I'm not a failure. But then that little thought keeps coming into her head. You say I'm a failure. No, I'm not a failure. And that's what I was saying earlier about this constant battle that she has. At first, some of the angriness sort of took me aback a little bit. But then I was Mm -hmm. quite grateful for it because I'm like, yeah, she's that's real. And I quite liked the fact that she wasn't sugarcoating it and wasn't hiding Mm -hmm. the fact that she was angry. She recognised that she's got all these strengths, but then this sometimes this negative thinking comes back in and this doubt comes back in. And that's where I saw this constant battle. And I think that really helped me understand perhaps the anorexic brain a bit more, maybe it helped me understand her experience uh, a bit more because she displayed it even during the interview.
1: You get that sense of how uncomfortable it is to be in the middle of a battlefield where you are both sides.
0: I love the phrase you used at the beginning of this uh, interview. You called yourself a maximalist as opposed to minimalist. With that in mind, tell me what your visually, what your
2: surfboard looks like. Well, first of all, I should let you know that it's bright yellow. Hell to the yeah. Big, bright and yellow and beautiful. And I like yellow. It's bright and it's yellow and it's got a million primary colours on it. Um, I'm not a big floral person, but I do love like big starry, bright colours, not just lots and lots and lots of colour, a million colours. And it's got messages. Everyone I love on it, you know, like a cast when everyone's got scribbled messages. Mine's covered in that and it's messy, but not messy in like a dirty way. So it's clean and fresh smelling and it's covered, it's got loads of soap and nice stuff. So it's a clean mess. To someone else, it looks like a complete nutter, disorganised load of crap. But to me, it's the most. You know, logical and organized thing. My surfboard is it's bright, it's a beacon so that other people can find it and they can get on the surfboard too. And, you know, it takes them to it's like a lighthouse. It's going to help people at some point in the future. I'm going to be a big lighthouse surfboard, uh, a big dreamer. So I'll probably land up very disillusioned. And if I do, actually, this is a promise I want everyone who ever listens to this podcast to say to me You will not let me get bitter because I've gone through all this to get better, not bitter just going to keep trying keep swimming take it day by day and do my best on your beautiful colored surfboard on my beautiful right colored surfboard the lighthouse that's going to help people swim to shore and surf the, the waves of life and deal with their own tsunamis and their own maelstroms and just keep
1: swimming I loved Laura's description of her surfboard. It was incredible. It felt so textured and so real. I could almost touch it, you know, and so bright as well. It was beautiful. So I wondered, Liz, what would your surfboard look like? Oh, what would my surfboard
0: look like? Very good question. So I think in terms of its form, it's quite sleek and fast. Yeah, I'm on a, a turbo-type surfboard and it's going fast through the waves and uh, they're crashing over, over them. It's, it's multicolored, for sure. It doesn't have words on it in the way that Laura's has words on it. I very much go with momentum. I find life has certain momentum. It takes you in a certain direction and I always think it's a good idea to... To latch onto that and just go with where the momentum is taking you. So,
1: so that's my surfboard.
2: Oh, How about yours? Oh
1: dear. I, I had to deconstruct this because if I imagine myself surfing, I have this okay this, is, okay, this can't go live okay, but I have this ridiculous fear of sharks. It's so not rational that I can't even begin to explain it. But for some reason when I first thought of my surfboard It was transparent. But then I was just thinking of how complicated that would be if there was a shark beneath it, because I'll be able to see it and it will terrify me. (laughs) But maybe that is my point, because I've been doing so much uh, work around being with my fear, because I realized that a lot of my anxiety came from me not voicing my fears. So instead of letting it's so much easier for me to breathe when I when somebody says you want to do this and I say, you know what, it really scares me. And then I can breathe much easier because nothing is expect I think it cuts the expectations that are coming for me. So maybe yeah, I do need to be surfing on a transparent board that will let me see everything that is underneath me, even if those things terrify me.
0: Yeah. Fantastic answer.
1: I love wow. that. Yeah. It's much better than my answer. Uh-huh. I can record my answer. <laughs> no, I, I really like what you mentioned about momentum. It's like going in the slipstream of the universe. You know, you feel like it's pulling you somewhere and you just go with it. Not because it's easy, but you you can use that easiness to create whatever you want to create. That Your surfboard for me makes a lot of sense, Liz. I like your surfboard.
0: Well, thank you. And certainly when I don't go with the momentum, that's when things get bogged down. And the waves start to crash over you in ways that makes life difficult. When I feel like I'm paddling against the current, mm-hmm. I need to ask myself, Is am I going with the momentum here or am I, am I trying to resist it?
1: Or is it a step for the momentum? Because you do have to paddle to find the wave. Because if the wave isn't there, you're not going to be able to surf. So it's just hold on, keep swimming, keep paddling, like Laura says. And then when you see the wave, just take it. And we love
0: Laura's metaphor of of the waves and the surfboard. Okay, we also want to hear from people what their surfboard looks like. Yes. What are the waters like in this sea on your
2: surfboard at the moment? To be honest, there's a lot of big life decisions having to be made at the moment. And all of them, I mean, the waters at the moment, they are very choppy. They are very, very choppy. Um, and there's lots of potential for negativity and anger and worry and making the wrong choice and making mistakes and a lot of fear there too. You know, what if I don't recover? Does that mean I won't get my bones back? I won't get my babies? You know, will I get a boyfriend? Will no man want me now that I've had anorexia? You know, you know how how do you introduce that on a first date? I I was very lucky that I was dating the same guy through the whole time who knew I you know helped me recover from anorexia and was very compassionate and kind. But I don't know if many men will be the same, meaning they won't want a girl who's an anorexia. Even if you're now, I'm perfectly fine with food and and I love food and I love life. Now I'm in a really good headspace and want to help other people too. I'm full of love, love so many things in life and have a huge appetite for life in terms of wanting to do amazing things, travel and have a travel partner and love. And I'm just worried that that won't happen because no one will want to be with me now, but there's still that tarnish on me. There's so many things I worry about, like my mum and her health and my siblings, you know, and them only ever seeing the, the anorexic version of me and about how I really want them to respect me again like they did before. Will you play this podcast to your family? Yeah, I mean, they they are, my family are everything to me. We, I call them my team. They are my sister, my my brother. My brother is my point of contact when emergency contact. My mum's probably one of my best friends. You know, I really love her. She's amazing her through hell and back but she can also be incredibly triggering at times so I sometimes say you know she's like my poison and pancheer. because at the end of the day when I was in eating disorder hospital they made her sign off everything I'd eaten so of course it's going to create a lot of poor dynamics regarding food regarding us and and that's not her fault but it's just what happened and my you know my brother then you know and my sister and my dad who they've been through hell and back with me and I feel like I kind of owe them to recover but that pressure sometimes can trigger binge eating and that fear and I don't want to recover for them and then blame them for being feeling fat and it's hard it's, it's a hard one and it's also difficult because we've got quite a large extended family and I love them all too my whole extended family are literally one of my biggest blessings and I've got wonderful friends as well I'm very very lucky in that sense my surfboard is fueled by love
0: I was really thankful for her honesty about her relationship with her family, with her mother, her her mother, father, brother and sister. She talks a lot about her brother and the relationship she has with him and how... You know, she feels like he's kind of got a bit exhausted by the whole thing. And at that point when she talks about her mother often being a trigger, therefore, every time her mother mentions even food to her or, or you're looking a bit thin, that is a trigger for her because it was her mother who was put in the role of the, of the policeman, in a way, to tell the truth uh, about what she had actually been eating. And it must be really difficult to be the family and be the friends in, in that situation. So I got a lot from from that segment.
1: Yeah, so did I. Families are complicated and our own brains are complicated. And when it all comes into a mix, sometimes it can be explosive.
0: At the end of the monologue, it actually takes a turn, quite a positive turn. So we've we've had this very angry language. We've had um, this whole thing of mistakes and negative thinking. And then it turns into this this positive
2: it's a whole big culture at the moment i think we have of what i'd like to call quite toxic positivity which is don't don't whitewash it there's going to be shit days i mean this is a big part of why i actually relapsed because i was in an eating sort of hostel and they said gain weight and bang everything in your life will be fixed no you don't recover and all the shit doesn't go away you still have to deal with shit that's normal but at the same time, it's not like, oh, my God, the world is a shit place. Nothing ever good happens. It's like it's not like toxically positive or and it's also not catastrophically. That's word Catastrophic. Oh, yeah, that's another thing you should know. I'm dyslexic. <laughs> a, a dyslexic writer. I mean, come on. You're a dyslexic wordsmith. Ever. That's that's interesting. And that's partly, I think, where my sense of failure comes from, because at school very much they said, you know, you've done so well considering you're, sorry, considering you're dyslexic. We loved your history essay. It was very good considering you're dyslexic. And it does mean that sometimes when I'm talking about my words and I can't say words like, cat- just you know, catastrophic, going back to that, you shouldn't be toxically positive or catastrophically negative. There is a fine balance in the middle, which I like to call cautiously optimistic. We've all got to just realise that yes, they will be shit. And yes, some of we've got flaws that we'll have to deal with.
0: The end of your monologue is that, the cautious optimism. I yeah, mean, one of my favourite lines in it is, somehow you forgot to buy a surfboard and bought a speedboat with a hole instead. Yeah. I, I think that's a fantastic line. But I love your in your surfboard metaphor, you, you've got your surfboard of coping mechanisms. Take us on your surfboard that you're on right now and and talk about some of your coping mechanisms.
2: Being cautiously optimistic is also about realising we've all got cavemen brains. And our cavemen brains are still doing flight and flight mechanisms, basically responding to stresses like we are seeing a predator. But we have to self-evolve our brains and help them to adapt to modern life. And one of the ways in which we can do that very simply is to literally trick our brains and one way you can trick your brain is doing things like being in nature. You can do things like yoga. You can have hot baths, candles, things like that. But I'm not saying go away and just have a hot bath and all your problems will be solved. Um, no, it's not like that. But it's about doing whatever works for you. Like I know I there are certain things I have to do like I can't drink because I know it makes me low. Caffeine makes me really hyper when I'm anxious. So I tend to stay away from caffeine. I know I have to do things like too much sugar, give too much sugar to an anxious person. and You're having a laugh. Um, I have to get like, lots of sleep. Simple, so eight hours sleep, just do it. It makes good for your brain. I have to do things I enjoy, dancing and things like that. I know for a fact that I have to go for a walk every day because if I don't go for a walk every day, I will start to feel anxious. Can you tell me a bit
0: more about your uh, this is a theme we've covered in other episodes as well. your experience um of being in hospitals, so that moment when you the decision is made to go
2: in and then what the hospital yeah. experience was like i I've been in and eaten to hospital, and where I was force fed, um, and it was horrible. And I will never eat pasta again as a result of that. And I have had it since with my family and enjoyed it and bit of foodly there. But I just, it just, it just isn't very positive. It just triggers quite bad memories. And then I went on after that um, and did day units and you know things like that, which are like an old age people home where you sit around all day and get fed. And it sounds amazing, but it's quite weird environment. And then I did some outpatients and that was cool. Um, I was only put in hospital because I, um, my heart nearly stopped. And so it was actually to save my life. When I first talked about the hospital, I basically saw it as this really limiting thing. But now I just very simply see it as the thing that saved my life. And I would be dead if I wasn't for it. I'd literally be dead. Anorexia hospitals and mental health hospitals, all they are is very simply like any other, you know, R&L boat that comes along. They're a lifeboat, saves you, that gets you healthy they are needed and the government has to stop cutting funding for them because they save lives and it's very simple you know they save lives and if you don't have them people die and i've so far lost seven people of my friends to anorexia and i will never forget you know how i had a friend called steph who was so similar to me and i mean i'm sitting here staring at a poster that said be beautiful and steph wrote that for me and she died of diabetes she had um, diabetes and she stopped you know stopped taking because she was worried that the, the, the insulin would make her fat I was forced fed and everything. And I actually went on for a short period to develop a bit of, um, I mean, this is even worse, to develop a bit of binge eating. And basically that was when I thought, no, I might as well just eat and eat and eat and never stop because I've got to gain weight. Otherwise I'll never, ever, ever be able to be a mom and I'll never, my osteoporosis will be so bad. And of course my family, all this pain and I've just got to eat and eat and eat and it'll solve everything. And now I'm kind of at this place where I'm like, no, I don't undereat, I don't overeat. I'm completely anti-food waste literally obsessed with anti-food waste I think it's one of the worst atrocities in the world that you can have you know a third of the world's produce wasted to me it's criminal but I remember being in Eatingswood hospital and the idea of eating almonds would just eating a nut was just my brain told me that would mean that I would spiral to obesity and I'd die alone Uh, you might as well put me down and I'd rather die than be fat and I remember that and I then remember in recovery you know gradually relearning to eat foods I loved like white chocolate magnums and milky bars and you know I always say cooking up a storm but I I definitely still have this fear and I know that this fear is stopping me moving forward because at some point in my life I'd actually really love to be a mother at some point I would love to have a family I've always been like that I was a girl who played barbies and had you know seven kids in the barbie games you know I would like a family and my anorexia is unfortunately you know stopping me from being potentially being fertile so I'm limiting that. I also know that I'm a runner. I mean, who has big, who has run 44 marathons and has a big wall behind me of all my marathon running. And my anorexia, unfortunately, has caused me to have the bones of, of an 8 year old. Um, and so I am getting stress fractures and things like that. Are you So you're still running marathons? No, no, I haven't been able to run because of my, because of everything. So is it osteoporosis? The
0: osteoporosis has come from the anorexia?
2: Yeah, it has. Um, basically, if you get too low a body weight, what happens is, basically, and I told you about estrogen, estrogen also supports bone formation. You know, what ha- happens is the doctors just tend to put you on the pill, the contraceptive pill, but the contraceptive pill doesn't contain something called insulin growth factor, which also helps to support your bones. And now they're talking about giving, you know, young people hormone replacement therapy. So they stop osteoporosis, but they didn't have that at the time. At the time when I was younger, they didn't do that and so it's too late for me but it hopefully it will help other people I do have to ask you
0: one more question it's a question we ask everybody it's the the magic pill if you could take a magic pill which would sort of get rid of your anorexia brain for example that would get rid of your anorexia would you would you take it
2: do you want the honest truth yeah Uh, the binge eating definitely yeah and the anorexia side of it yeah I I think I probably would because it would make life a lot easier (laughs) and make life a lot less complicated but I'd also want to erase all the stuff that had necessarily happened because I wouldn't wish any of that on my worst enemy it's been really really difficult I'm not gonna lie but at the same time I can't change it and I am where I am now and it's definitely made me a different person I hope that it's made me more compassionate I hope that it's done some good somewhere and that Whatever happens, I hope that something good comes out of all of it. Uh, it's tarnished my reputation, very much tarnished my reputation as being this happy, flawless person who was going to be prime minister. Um, and now I'm this person who had mental illness and was in the hospital and can't ever just talk about food and be without people assuming it's because I'm anorexic. Or can't ever just be Laura, it has to always be... Laura, who had, you used to have issues. That big word, issues, which I find really hard. And then my brother, parents, were always like, "Laura, you know, you shouldn't compare yourself to your younger sister." But she is the upgrade of me, and she's so perfect. And I use her as a way of putting myself down. She's so flawless. And she hasn't, got, you know, she's got perfect skin because I, when I got anxious, I, 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 pick a bit in my face, and it's just one of my maladaptive coping mechanisms. She's got perfect skin, and she's so flawless and perfect, and you've ruined yourself and you've you ruined everything you took a perfect thing and you made it ugly in a weird way I just use my mental illness as another way of just beating myself up and saying you're just it's just another flaw another another failure really so realistically would I take a pill to stop that feeling of failure probably yes but it doesn't mean that I am a failure it just means I am where I am and yes my sister didn't, doesn't have to go through any of that. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad for her that she doesn't have to go through it because she's a lovely person. I'm really proud of her and I love her so much. So, no, I, I don't envy her. I enjoy her company. And I don't resent the fact that she, uh, she ha- doesn't have to go through everything negative I went through. And I don't resent the fact that, you know, yeah, it is unfair. Life's unfair. There's that saying, you know, we, we need to live for what today has an offer, not for what yesterday has taken away. And I really believe that. Can't change it. So I am where I am, and there might as well be some good that comes out of it.
0: There was one thing she said that sort of broke my heart a bit, where she said um, about herself, you took a perfect thing and you made it ugly. Yes. Um, that that really struck me.
1: It is heartbreaking, but she hasn't made anything ugly out of herself. If anything, she has broken something that is now shining light through and she's reaching out to the world and sharing this experience so that other people will be able to connect with it. And maybe, I'm not sure if they will be able to avoid whatever is coming, but they'll be able to relate to it differently and it not being a thing that defines them. And I love that about what Laura says, that this thing happened, but it's not, some, it's not who she is
0: well, I wish you a lot of luck on your choppy waters and uh, I can't yeah but that, does,
2: that, that doesn't mean I want everyone to know as well that when you're in choppy waters there 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 will always be islands of good as well so I've got lots of amazing stuff coming up as well you know don't wear shit colored glasses but don't wear rose colored glasses just wear glasses and see the okay. see the picture and realize that you're cautiously optimistic it's all going to be okay whatever happens I will survive and there's some islands in amongst this choppy water
0: always Always. Thank you so much. You've been brilliant. Thank you so much to Laura for taking us with her on her multicoloured surfboard. It's been a real privilege surfing the waves with you. If you're struggling with any of the issues we've discussed in this podcast, there is a page on our website, what'sgoingonyourhead.org, that can signpost you to places where you can find help. In our next episode, John Salmon is back and he'll be discussing addiction with Chris Tate from Electric Six.